Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today, we're talking with Jennifer Turpin from Turpin Crawford Studios, which use art to communicate our relationship with the environment. In today's episode, we unpack their work that they're doing in environmental restoration, including how they've been working to naturalize paved canals and how this could be used to improve our stormwater problem at Coogee. You're listening to Coogee Voice. We really, we're at a really transitional time in human history where, and in, in a way, COVID has given us this opportunity to focus on what is actually the most important issue facing us, which is our connection to nature, our, our relationship to the environment that we're a part of. It is a wind-activated artwork. Basically, a giant ring that is kind of, in a sense, floating up in the air, pivoted on a on a slanting pole. It's it's finely tuned in its counterbalancing, and it will respond to any movement in the wind, 12 meters up in the air where it's located. Jennifer, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? Very well, thanks, Marjorie. Great to be talking with you. Yeah, look, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show today. And for our listeners, we're doing a series of interviews with people on the back end of the IPCC report that has had pretty scathing sort of recommendations and views around Australia's action or inaction on climate change and environmental protection. And as part of this series, we're talking with a number of local eastern suburbs identities that are doing different things in the environmental space to try and unpack climate change, environmental protection, and how we can be addressing it bit by bit. Because I think for some people, when we talk about climate change and addressing it, it can be a bit bigger than Ben-Hur and can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, Broadly speaking, though, before we get into our discussion about the work that you're doing, why is it important that we prioritise environmental protection and address climate change, Jennifer? Well, I think it's the single most important issue that's facing us on the planet. And I think that we as humans have a huge responsibility uh, to ensure that life goes on. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our actions over the decades, over the century, past centuries, probably since industrialization, have um, been damaging to precious fragile and delicate ecosystems of which we are a part and I think we've become increasingly uh, separate, uh, imagined ourselves as being separate from nature whereas in fact we are part of nature and I think that we need to we need to re-acknowledge that and um, because otherwise we're heading for a, a pretty disastrous kind of future. I think it's up to uh, human humankind to um, to act and act now to protect our in, ecosystems and in, our total environment. Jennifer, for me, one of the most dangerous things that I've witnessed is how the discussion around climate change has actually become incredibly polarizing, and it's really turned into a bit of a debate around ideology rather than around science and addressing it. I want to know your thoughts on that. The ideology and the the, um, the politics around it are infuriating because the facts are there. Um, we just need to listen to the scientists, listen to the experts who are producing fact after fact after fact about um, degradation and problems in terms of climate change and um, uh, uh, changing environment, changing climate, uh, changing ecosystems. And I think everybody needs to stop talking and listen more carefully. You know, there's, there's far too much talk. The, the, the listening is listening to the scientists, listening to the earth, listening to the other species that we share this planet with. We are too, too quick and too willing to kind of jump in with 
with talk about protecting this and that human activity. Um, but there's a much bigger picture than that. It, that you know, we, we, you know, we don't have economics without a planet. So there's there's no point kind of prioritizing um, uh, human centric behavior without thinking about the big picture. And the people who are focused on on the big picture are, at the moment are the scientists and and, and others, of course. But um, we have to, you know, we have to listen to the wise people. We have to listen to David Attenborough and and many of the other scientists around the world and in Australia who are telling us what's happening. Um, and and once you once you tune into that arena, um, you you start learning about. Um, what's really going on, and and the 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 kind of debates that are going on about um, jobs and growth, and and um, it, it, you know, for example, the the mining industry, the, the the coal mining industry, and you know, I can't, I mean, I totally sympathise with the people who work in that sector, but we've got we've got to all think much bigger, you know, for the sake of Several hundred jobs, or even several thousand jobs, uh, you've got to think about the survival of the planet. And you know, if burning coal is producing this almighty change in and in climate and temperature rising, then we've got to we've got to just recalibrate. You know, and and people who work in that industry, unfortunately, need to be the people that may have to rethink what they do so protecting you know an industry that is outmoded which you know some politicians are doing um is just it's wrong-headed thinking we need to be innovative we need to be creative we need to be nimble and and act and reposition ourselves you know re re relearn um you know mining the mining industry needs to to be you know, recast as the uh, green energy sector, and there's so many fabulous opportunities for retraining and repositioning our industries so that they are truly green and not greenwashed, but properly green. And I think that that's a lot of our a lot of the discussion gets stuck on. Um, well, I guess sort of traditional uh, political um, divisions uh, about uh, labour and industry. We need to think about logging. We need to think about all, all the industries that we do in terms of their carbon footprint. It, I mean, we really we're at a really transitional time in human history, where um, and in in a way, COVID has given us this uh, opportunity to focus. On what is actually the most important issue facing us, which is our connection to nature, our, our relationship to the environment that we're a part of, and and I think we need to take this moment in history and go with it, go with the transitioning towards a better future, rather than trying to hang on to a past that is linked, at least in the Western capitalist sort of world. Um, that is linked to um, all, all kinds of malpractice, if you like, you know, sort of principles which ultimately are about destruction of the planet and people who may seek to be more connected. Yeah, I think the only other thing that I'd like to add around this is there is not also enough discussion around innovative sustainable green jobs of the future and if we actually invest in the environment and environmental protection there is a plethora of jobs that can be created that are sustainable and will be there for the test of time coal is not an infinite resource we are going to run out of it whether we run out of it tomorrow or in 20 years time so these jobs will not exist purely based on the fact that this resource does not exist so we do need to actually be thinking about what is work where do we work and again with a bit of innovation a bit of creativity there is a whole new range of jobs 
based around the environmental sector. And, you know, if that's what is important to people is around jobs and growth, we can be thinking about the growth in sustainable farming, um, you know, the growth in uh, the green energy sectors, growth even just in things like seaweed and seaweed innovation is incredibly exciting. Bees. So I think it it just takes a little bit of imagination, a little bit of recalibrating where we're focusing putting money because there are jobs that are there. And if jobs are what are important to people, let's actually think about jobs that are going to be there for the test of time and that are not going to be going out and dying in the next 20 years. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> now, before we sort of get into unpacking a bit about your different environmental projects that you're involved in. Can you tell us a little bit about Turpin Crawford Studios and around the work that you do there? So Turpin Crawford Studio is uh, basically a partnership between myself and my longtime artist colleague, McCallie Crawford. And we we have a focus on creating public art projects over the last 20, 25 years where we've focused pretty much on environmental, mostly outdoor um, artworks. And those works, we often call them collaborations with nature. They're public uh, artworks in the sense that they're in public places. So we've made permanent public artworks in in public places like Sydney Harbour, um, parks and so on. But we've also partnered with other um, design professionals on projects that are environmental restoration works. So, for example, stormwater um, harvesting, stormwater management and improvement. We've been in- involved as the project artists uh, and found our role differently across various different different projects. So, as artists, what we've been engaged with is Basically, help making artworks that trigger the imagination of the audience to connect them more closely with their natural environment. So a lot of our artworks are kinetic. They're, they're, they're active. They're breathing in the rhythm of our cities and our urban landscapes in the sense that they move. And they are largely moving in response to nature's elemental energies. So we've done a number of wind-activated artworks. We've done uh, a tidal wave and wind-activated artwork in the harbour. We've um, we've done work artworks that um, that connect with place, with history, and with the immediacy of uh, the environment. So both the built environment and the natural environment. They're very site-specific artworks. Why does art play such an important role in our discussions around, I guess, even just sparking ideas in people around the importance of environmental protection and around our, I guess, engagement with the environment as well? Well, I think that art has a, a special place in our societies, in our cultures, because it has. Um, I mean, a bit like science, it, it, um, it's inherently a curious and creative uh, enterprise and it often shares, um, you know, connections with the natural world. We as artists often get involved in experimentation and investigation and research into nature's life forms. But I think that um, art... Art has a, a, a potentially quite powerful role to play in in the environment in by positively transforming our relationship to the environment. You know, whereas science provides data and important um, information, um, art has this potential to engage the imagination and the in- intellect through a different perhaps more intuitive language. And, you know, in relation to, say, science in the environment, art can draw upon and complement the knowledge of science. I mean, art can reveal the unknown. It it can remember the forgotten. 
and focus our, our attention on what we may have taken for granted. Talking specifically about some of your projects, Tide to Tide in the Sydney Harbour, which you just touched on, Lightline Social Square uh, in the Sydney Metro Northwest Station, Halo in Chippendale. Can you tell us a little bit more about these works and the role that they play or you hope that they play in raising awareness around environmental impacts? Sure. Well, maybe I'll start with Tide to Tide, which is a uh, an artwork that's been floating in Sydney Harbour for nearly, uh, just over 20 years now. And it is an artwork that is a series of, of timber and uh, aluminium structures, let's say, that are hinged to the boardwalk at Piermont Point Park on the edge of the, of the harbour. And by virtue of some float tanks that are connected to one end of these uh, sort of linear type of structures, they move up and down with the tide. So the art, there's eight, eight identical units that occupy an area about 50 metres long on the edge of the harbour, and they respond to every single movement in the harbour at that, at that place. So they respond to changes in the tide, they respond to the wind, they respond to wave wash from passing boats or created by the wind. So at the moment that you as an audience member are standing there looking at this artwork, you are, you are reading what is happening energetically with the harbour. The artwork is, is, is in a sense a kind of barometer that harnesses all those energies, um, that are simply there in the harbour. So the artwork is really seeking to connect us, um, with the wonders of the harbour. I mean, every six hours, the tide is going up or down. Every 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 six hours, a massive amount of water is coming in and out of the heads uh, in, of Sydney Harbour, North and South Head, and it's this is a pheno- this is an incredible phenomena, but we tend to just take it for granted or not even think about it. And only when you're on a boat or, or, or in the water do you feel that buoyancy, do you feel the draw of the, uh, of the current, do you feel perhaps the tide. But if you don't have that bodily experience, the artwork actually gives you that visceral, uh, corporeal sort of sense of this huge body of water, the wind and the other energies surrounding it. So that particular artwork is really about illuminating the complexities, uh, the beauty and the wonder of the Sydney Harbour. Jennifer, as we see more extreme weather patterns as a result of climate change, how is that then represented in this art and how do you see that and the art changing? Well, that particular artwork, well, it depends what happens with the tide? I mean, if the if the sea level rises, uh, tide to tide, the artwork will respond differently. Uh, it won't have such a big range of movement between high and low tide, for example. If we experience more extreme winds, the 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 latter type of objects that are pivoted off the end of each of the timber structures will move more violently, will move more actively. So. It will that particular artwork will respond to those changes in a visible way, and um, it's not an artwork that's going to tell us about um, uh, a drying environment. But other, you know, other artworks um, may well tune in by other other artists may well tune into some of those climate change um, phenomena. So. Halo is an artwork at, uh, sited, uh, located at, at Central Park in Chippendale. It is on the site of what was a former brewery and, uh, in fact, probably the oldest brewery in the country. Uh, it ran continuously, I think, for about 170 years as a brewery before it was repurposed as a residential and, uh, c- commercial precinct, which is new and vibrant and up and running. So the artwork, Halo, 
sits at the heart of the public domain within this precinct. And it it is a wind-activated artwork. It's basically a giant ring that is kind of, in a sense, floating up in the air, pivoted on a on a slanting pole. It's it's finely tuned in its counterbalancing, and it will respond to any movement in the wind, 12 metres up in the air where it's located. So it's harnessing the winds of the moment, telling you what's going on up there above your head. But at a at the, at the level of urban design, uh, it's providing an active heart to that place. McKelly and I wanted to create a work that would create this energetic heart, but at the same time, through its movement, gesture to all the buildings around it. So as it turns, it's kind of, in a sense, gesturing to the residential buildings, the former um, brewery um, powerhouse that, that is a heritage building that is still there. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of creating uh, a focus, if you like, in this place. It's a place where people meet you know, they, you know, people, cyclists say, let's meet at Halo. It, it's become a place-making uh, artwork in a sense. Uh, over time, it's it's been there that it's been there, which is about five years now. So Halo, again, like Tide to Tide, it's an artwork that's reminding us about the the natural energies that surround us in the wind, and it has the ability to tilt. Um, and to rotate. So it's slightly kind of drunken in its movement, which is a nod to the history of the site as a, as a brewery. Uh, and it, it, um, creates a sort of, um, a slightly sort of magical feeling, particularly at night when it, when it's illuminated from below and it's got an ethereal kind of color because it's, it's, it's a very, um, luminous sort of yellow colour. So that's that's an artwork that's talking about um, the sky, the, the wind, our our connection and our awareness of that aspect of uh, the energies of nature. Changing gears a tiny bit, Turpin Crawford Studios um, have been quite involved in a number of environmental restoration projects. Are you able to talk a little bit about them and the specific importance of these projects, particularly for our environment, where we're heading in trying to address climate change and sort of undo some of the damage that has been done by humans? Right, yes. Look, I could talk about a couple of projects that are stormwater harvesting projects. Starting back in the in the 1990s, I was, McKelly and I were involved with a project called Restoring the Waters that was initiated by Schaffer Barnsley Landscape Architects and it was led by Barbara Schaffer, uh, who is the current New South Wales Government Landscape Architect. Um, Barbara uh, and Sue Barnsley created a multidisciplinary pro team to implement a project that was about improving the quality of stormwater in Western Sydney. So the location was Fairfield and it was sited around a concrete stormwater channel. Now, we're all familiar with these concrete stormwater channels in our metropolitan city, cities and suburb, suburban areas as well. But what people don't really realise is that most of those concrete channels used to be natural creeks. and in the day, the engineering solution to dealing with stormwater, to dealing with runoff water, was to channelise a, a lot of these creeks and kind of cauterise them in concrete, if you like. That meant that if there was any, if there was any risk of flooding, a concrete channel is much more efficient in terms of getting water out and down to a, a river or a creek, uh, sorry, a river or a, a harbour, faster than a natural creek. 
Now, that might have been a good solution to dealing with flooding, but it is not a good solution when you take into account where that water is coming from and the pollution that it may carry with us in terms of, because most stormwater is runoff water from the roads and that carries with it the oil slick from cars, um, rubbish and other stuff that ends up in gutters. So what a lot of people don't realise is that stormwater is not treated like sewerage water is. It doesn't go off to some big treatment plant and get filtered and cleaned and sifted. It doesn't. It just goes straight from those concrete channels right down to the bay or the river um, and everything that's in that water pollution will be carried into that waterway and eventually out to sea. So stormwater traditionally is not checked. It's not treated properly. So this this innovative project, which was called Restoring the Waters, was all about improving the quality of stormwater. And interestingly, in the process, the things were changed around. So basically, the, the basics of the project was that a dilapidated old concrete stormwater um, open channel was was redesigned and eventually um, recreated as a natural meandering creek system with all the sort of natural filtering processes of slowing water down, have it meandering, planting trees and reeds and uh, creating riffles and so on in the water that would would naturally filter it. So it was a, a it was a pioneering project at the time. And, it, and interestingly enough, the engineer who had been involved in creating the stormwater back in the, the channel, the concrete channel back in the 60s, was absolutely all for the the restoration of the creek. So it, 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 the, the project involved a lot of people in terms of um, designers. You know, we had a habitat ecologist, we had um, a hydraulic engineer, we had a fluvial geomorphologist, the landscape architect, and and McKelly and I as the project artists. And it, our role was um, an interesting one because the concrete channel it, that was there was just in the middle of the of a huge grassed easement at the back of people's backyards, in a sense. And we were planning to reinstate a meandering creek. We had photographs of the aerial aerial photographs of what that creek had looked like before it had been channelized into a straight um, concrete line. Um, and as artists, we we took a while to figure out what our role would be, but quickly realised um, at a certain point that we had to help try and bring the community on board because a lot of people were uh, so familiar with the concrete channel that they somehow thought that was natural. And, you know, this is what happens with cultural amnesia when things disappear. We forget what was there originally. So a lot of people... For them, they were they were happy and safe, felt safe with the concrete channel, and were nervous about reinstating a a more natural system, uh, you know, a creek that would meandered and the, and all the plants and animals that would go with that. But so we artists decided to run a project that would help engage the community in imagining a restored creek. So. We had an artwork called the Memory Line, which was a four-kilometre-long band of planted grass that was a temporary artwork that was planted on, along the line that the creek had originally taken, and it, and it was it was remembering the lost ecology, remembering the lost hydrology of that creek, and it was there for six months while the designs for the restored creek were continuing and we ran a whole bunch of other projects with schools um, to, uh, to to engage people with the importance of water in their lives and to to think and imagine what the creek would be like when it was restored 
So the artwork was a kind of interim imagination booster, if you like. I think what's really interesting about this as well is this project was 1995. Um, There has actually been a considered move, I think, across Sydney around the naturalisation of creeks, and we're actually seeing more and more of them. There's increasing numbers now in the inner west where we're seeing this, and there's real pushes uh, towards the state government now to look at naturalising all of these creeks. Uh, Before we start talking about some of your other projects, I do want to stick on the topic of stormwater because it is one of the sort of particular issues that is to Coogee, uh, which is the Coogee stormwater issue. Uh, And big parts of the conversation around that are around uh, the waste and the rubbish that just gets swept out to sea and then what that does to our ocean and beach environment. Broadly speaking, what do you think are, I guess, the aspects of a sustainable environmental approach to solving the Coogee stormwater problem? Okay, so I think there's there's a lot to go to go with in terms of how to how to deal with stormwater. There's a lot of work that's been done, as you said, in Australia, but also overseas. I worked with a, a marvelous German landscape architect, uh, artist Herbert Dreisaitl, who's done some major projects in in Europe and Singapore and America in terms of improving the quality of stormwater and through this naturalising process that you just mentioned, um, Marjorie. So I think that there are, there's a few key things that really need to be addressed. First of all, I think the community needs to be made more aware that by dropping something in a gutter, it's going to end up down in the ocean. So there used to be, you know, 20 years ago, there was sort of campaigns, you know, drop something in the drain, you know, where does this end up? There were people who would write signs in gutters and so on that, you know, just a drain away from your ocean or, you know, this this drain leads to Kuji or, or Bronte or Bondi, um, I think we have to we have to jump onto that again, just to remind people that whatever they do in terms of putting stuff on the road, whether it's washing their car, that that soapy water is going to end up in in the ocean. Um, there's no filtering process, so we need to think about how better to run our lives. Um, so that we we think about protecting the quality of water that's going into the ocean. You know, we think about those poor fish and, and marine creatures who are getting smothered with plastic and oil slick, or um, uh, you know, or, or runoff from chemicals that you know you might wash your car with. We we have that we have that in the palm of our hands. You know, we really can control that. We just we just need to think about controlling that pollution at source you know, in your driveway, in the gutter, on the road, and then, you know, down at the beach. You know, there are things called gross pollutant traps, which are uh, big nets, if you like, that um, can capture big stuff um, that goes into the gutters. So in turn, that they're an important part of stopping large-scale uh, pollutants getting into the ocean. Then there's the, the, micro, the more... Micro level pollutants. So the idea of having sufficient garden and soil areas, you know, adjacent to roads that that will absorb um, uh, pollutants. Like for example, I you know again the example of washing your car. It's best done over uh, over a lawn area, not on the street. So, so that the, the soap suds and so on get absorbed into the ground, not not into the waterways. And um, yeah, so awareness is important. The implement, you know, community awareness of of what constitutes uh, litter and and what com- constitutes a pollutant. We need to continually remind ourselves of that. You know, when when I was growing up, there was a campaign that was called do the right thing and there was a you know a picture of a of a hand dropping rubbish into a rubbish bin 
And that was really successful. It was a really powerful, successful campaign that just kind of indelibly imprinted itself in your brain that, you know, the right thing to do is to dispose of, of waste in a thoughtful way. So I think the more that we as communities can remember that, that the, the, the more the education uh, is imaginatively sort of um, driven so that kids and other people um, actually, you know, you know, just start behaving or continue to behave responsibly, that's important. And then there's technical solutions like the design of both pollutant traps uh, right down at the beach level. And then there's other projects like Restoring the Waters and another one that um, McKellie and I were involved with called um, uh, the Stormwater Harvesting Project at Sydney Park, which was part of the City of Sydney. That was a big project that was about using biomass, um, that is to say bioretention swales, which is planted uh, reeds and particular um, vegetal, uh, particular plants that actually filter pollutants out of um, water that's coming from the roadways. So through the mitochondria and their roots, they will, you know, take out arsenic and lead and um, and, and so on. That so that kind of there are there are projects like that, the Sydney Park stormwater harvesting project. That are um, there's there was another one in in South Sydney in you know, ten years ago at Victoria Park. Where, which all, all, all of these projects are about ensuring that through design, through landscape design, through using biological processes that we can look at filtering uh, this polluted water and stop it uh, in its tracks, clean it before it gets down into the waterways into the rivers and bays and ocean. And I just want to say for people uh, that are particularly interested around stormwater and stormwater management, I would very much encourage you to head to the Ramwick Council website. They've been running, we've been running a really great campaign around stormwater and around water recycling. And I also would encourage people to adopt a drain. It's one of the things that people can do locally, looking after our local drains and keeping them clean to make sure and reduce the amount of waste that is going out to sea. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about Operation Crayweed and that project? Sure. Um, Operation Crayweed is a collaborative project that implemented by marine scientists at the University of New South Wales and the Sydney Institute of Marine Science and Sydney University as well. And it is a project, it's a marine restoration project and McKellie and I have collaborated with these group of scientists for the last um, six years. Operation Crayweed, it really is a good news environment story uh, crayweed is a particular species of seaweed that disappeared from Sydney's coastal waters, um, probably in the 80s, 90s, and probably because of uh, water pollution. So it's a, it's a really important species that provides habitat for marine creatures and food for marine creatures. So when it disappeared, so too did all the creatures that relied upon it. So weedy sea dragons, um, sea snails, uh, crayfish, uh, all these important um, marine species did not, no longer had a home. So scientists decided some years ago, about 10 years ago, they started um, becoming aware of this problem. So basically the crayweed used to grow in Sydney's coastal waters and then from Palm Beach to Cronulla, uh, it just disappeared. And, and it was probably, they think it's probably because of the direct ocean outfall from Bondi that, you know, in the old days when raw sewage used to just be pumped into the ocean. So 
But when the water quality improved because Sydney Water sort of changed their practices and pumped things further out to sea, the, the crayweed didn't return on its own. It, 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 and, you know, this is what so often happens with delicate and fragile ecosystems. They, they, they needed help. So the scientists decided to, to provide a helping hand and take stock healthy stock that it still existed and was still growing south of Cronulla and north of Palm Beach and reintroduce it into the areas within the coast where it used to grow. And they took a long time to figure out the best way to replant, but basically have been highly successful in replanting it in about 25 different sites along the 70 kilometres of Sydney's coastal waters. And the the, and the great thing is that those those places where the where the seaweed has reforested itself with the help of the scientists, the crayfish are coming back, the weedy sea dragon are coming back, the creatures that rely upon uh, this important foundation species are, are starting to return and flourish. But the problem in terms of the real, you know, the ongoing success of this project, as the scientists realised, and Adriana Verges, from who's an associate professor at the University of New South Wales, saw an opportunity to collaborate with art, with artists, um, because she realised that the work that they do as scientists is kind of invisible. I mean, they're underwater. <laughs> Nobody sees this important work that they're doing. So McKelly and I came on board to work with them, with the scientists, and really we saw our role was to make make this work in this invisible work visible, to in a sense kind of bring it all up to the surface and create art that artworks and art projects and participatory um, projects in particular that would uh, engage people, the community. Kids. We work with kids from five different schools in the Bondi, Coogee and um, sort of Clavelli area uh, to do a range of projects that would raise their awareness about what was going on and give them an opportunity to get involved uh, in helping helping nature um, in the same way that in, a, in the same way that scientists are doing. So that project. So just to cut a long story short, we we did a, a major project that was part of the Sculpture by the Sea 2016, um, where we created a half kilometre kind of safety, artistic safety fence, which was wrapping the bay that were under underwater. The scientists were replanting the um, crayweed, and it was kind of taking this notion of work and then. We then conceptually used the materials of the work site and worked with um, all sorts of regular construction sort of um, objects like hard hats and um, barrier mesh and um, marine floats and and we kind of put that together as the vision and created a vis the visual language around a project that was both. Uh, an on-site project and a series of, of of creative workshops with kids. So children made wearable marine creature costumes out of the same materials that we made the on-site artwork with, and they paraded them along the worksite fence in the very area below and underwater uh, where the crayweed was planted. Uh, planted. So the kids got. They got the experience of, of learning about the science from the scientists who took them into the lab and they looked at crayweed under the microscope. They looked at all the little creatures that, that live in the crayweed. And then they got to make art, um, based around that. So it's through the creative process, I think, that often children, children's imaginations can be engaged and ignite, ignited. And focused on, on in this case, on the um, marine world. So I think that the, the 
the, the creative process that art offers um, can partner with science and, and, and complement science um, to engage the imagination of all sorts of people, children, adults alike. Jennifer, a big part of our sort of discussion today has been around, I guess, sparking discussions around environmental protection and its importance and how we start that dialogue with people. We may have some listeners here who have friends who are climate change sceptics who may not believe in the science of it. They don't believe that it's human-made. What would you say... I guess, as some advice to people who want to try engaging with friends and family and get them on board with why we should be prioritising climate change and environmental protection and how you can start to spark that discussion in a meaningful way so that we can have action. It's an important question. I think a couple of things. I think that it's really hard to protect something unless you care about it, unless you love it. So I think a starting point is to, to gauge somebody's connection with something in nature, you know, whether it's a gar- their garden or, or bushland or an underwater forest. I think maybe a starting point is to say, what is it in nature that you care about? What do you, and, and then if, if people say, well, you know, I like to go for a walk in the bush or I like enjoying the flowers in my garden, um, or, you know, I like swimming underwater and seeing what's living under there, then that's a, that's a starting point. And, and, and then, then you could, I guess, start sort of questioning, you know, how would you feel if this completely disappeared? How would you feel if there was no gardens, no forests, no, no life in the ocean? Uh, uh, this is just in order to, you know, provoke a thinking process. Um, cause I think that you, you, we need to address people's deep loves and deep connections and and challenge the way that you know we we think about that um i I also think you know in terms of people that might be skeptical about science i i would say things like do you go to a doctor do if you do do you trust what they say do you take the drugs that they uh, prescribe? Do you take the advice of the medical, um, um, you know, the medical profession? And if they if they say yes, you know, they would take an antibiotic or a, or a headache pill or something that you know we've come to rely upon as medical technology. Then then I think it's kind of quite easy to make that logical step. Say, well, we care about our bodies. And we listen to the, the scientific um, uh, professionals who advise and try and help us maintain our our physical health. There's there's not a big there's not a huge step from the notion of our body our our health as humans to the health of the planet. You know they're they're both about the same thing. They're about well being sustainability, you know, you want to keep living, you want to be healthy, you want to be able to walk and run and so on. Um, there's, there's not a big difference between human health and the health of the planet. So if, if you can kind of make that step and then you say, well, who are the people that best understand the health of the planet? And, you know, you, you'd have to come to the conclusion that they would be just the professionals who have spent their life studying it. And focusing on it and putting all the brain power into thinking about how best to sustain its health. And, and they're, and they're going to be the scientists and in particular the climate scientists. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I would try that kind of, that sort of approach. Um, but I think the thing about, um, learning to love 
what and care for even a small part of um, your natural environment is maybe a good step to thinking about the global health issues. It's a difficult conversation, I know, to have with some people. So sort of any way to just open up the door and start the dialogue I think is really important. Now, Jennifer, before I let you go, there are three questions we ask everyone that comes onto Coogee Voice. You must declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where you can get the best coffee, and where sells the best burgers. Go. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to be very close to home and say Clavelli Beach. I love because it's intimate and and you can swim there and watch the blue groper on a on a on a good day if um if you're lucky and you can watch other marine creatures if you snorkel out to the rocks uh best coffee i would say um i would say is going to be the village cafe in Clavelli road and this burger, well, you cannot go past out of the blue, in uh, also in Clavelli Road. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on Coogee Voice. If people would like to learn more about Turpin Crawford Studios, your restoration works and how you're using art as part of a discussion around our environment, where should they head to? Oh, well, they could head to our website, uh, which is, turpincrawfordstudio.com.au and they'll they'll get quite a lot of information about each of the projects. That's probably the best place to go. Or we've also had a presence on Instagram, again, Turpin Crawford Studio. That's probably the best. And each of those sites will also connect with our collaborators on, on the various um, restoration projects that we've been involved with so that's probably the best place to go head to Piermont, see tide to tide and check out this art yourself jennifer thank you for joining us on coogee voice thank you so much for having me marjorie it's been great to talk with you What an interesting conversation. Now, if you have a particular interest around stormwater solutions at Coogee Beach, I encourage you to head to the Ramwick Council page and see what we're doing to solve this problem. And if you'd like to learn more about the Turpin Crawford Studios, head to Instagram and check them out. You've been listening to Coogee Voice.